This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of January 11th, 2021. This week, we had Ken Jennings as the guest host, his first of, um, I think, uh, six weeks is what they say they've recorded. I thought he did a nice job as guest host. I thought he did really well as literally the only other person to do this job in the last 37 years aside from that one day that Pat Sajak was on. Yeah. Although I will say I put on Monday's episode and Ken Jennings walked onto the stage, did his like opening patter and and started reading the categories and my 5-year-old burst into tears. Oh. She said it's supposed to be the other guy. I like better <laughs> with the other guy. Um Aww. so then we both cried for a while. But Ken Jennings, I think, really uh, took seriously his his role as the first successor to Alex Trebek at that lectern. Mm-hmm. I liked how he um, kind of paid his respects to Alex with little kind of anecdotes and remarks throughout the week. I really liked that. Yeah, I, I thought that was the right way to go about it. Not that I thought about that beforehand, but at the end of the week, I... I had that same feeling like, yeah, that I, I think that was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and he signed off every game by saying, thank you, Alex, mm-hmm. which often, honestly, I've turned it off by the time <laughs> they've gone to, <laughs> gone to the host closing it out. But yeah, no, I thought I thought he was a, a real class act in this role. Mm-hmm. So we have Ken Jennings as the guest host and our contestants are Julia Shear Kushner, a lawyer from Long Beach, California, Tanae Kotari, a business operations associate from Oakland, California, and Jim Gilligan, an assistant professor of English education, originally from New York, New York whose one-day cash winnings totaled $24,401. And we have the Jeopardy! round categories, beefy teas, tea in quotation marks, idioms and expressions, New York society, television by the number, nonfiction, and earth at night in color, um, captured with next-generation cameras, apparently. Yes. Didn't seem to make much of a difference on my TV, but uh, maybe some people have nice TVs <laughs> and it actually mattered. To me, it looked like daytime shots, but largely like daytime shots, but they were nocturnal animals. So that's not really something mm. that you that I'd seen in that way before. Sure. It wasn't all animals, but yeah, no, there. Yeah, I guess I guess it looked kind of full colory, but it was like owls and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the six hundred dollar clue in beefy teas category. In a taco, lengua meat is braised this part of the cow. That's tongue. If you've never had a, a lengua taco, ooh, so good. Mm-hmm. Even if you're thinking like, oh, why would I eat cow tongue? Give it a shot. It's Just really trust good. me. Yeah. So good. Mm-hmm. We had at the $600 level of nonfiction, in A Grief Observed, he left the land of Narnia to grapple with his feelings of loss after his wife's death. Mm-hmm. That is... C.S. Lewis, Jim got that one. Um, We've talked about him on the podcast. I mean, Lewis is best known for the Chronicles of Narnia, I think. Mm -hmm. 
his kind of memoir and spiritual writing for adults is um, solid, interesting. A friend of mine, I don't think she listens, but, you know, shout out to Meg if she's listening, um, has offered an observation that um, a grief observed pairs really nicely with a much earlier C.S. Lewis work called The Problem of Pain, where he talks in a very abstract and academic way about why bad things happen to good people, it can come across kind of smug and know-it-all-ish, and then in a grief observed, I mean, you wouldn't wish it on anyone, but right. he, you know, wrestling with a real-life experience is very different from trying to kind of, you know, do academic theology, mm-hmm. and he, I think, experiences that problem in a in a more personal way yeah it kind of redeems the problem of pain for me which which i had read first and was very annoyed by interesting yeah i I haven't read it yet daily double number one is in the non-fiction category it's at the 800 dollars level 10a finds it it's pick number 12 he is at 4,000, a good lead over jim and julia's 1000 apiece and he bets it all which is also the right move Mm mm-hmm And he gets the clue, Oliver Sacks wrote about patients who recovered from a sleeping sickness in this book that became a Robert De Niro movie. Fans of the podcast would know that that is Awakenings. Uh But Tanae had not listened to that particular deep dive, so he did not get it. And he dropped down to zero. Ken reminds him that there's still a lot of time in the game. Which is a good reminder. Yep. Because there is. There is, yes. <laughs> and he's only a thousand behind the other two players. <laughs> exactly. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jim is at 800, Tanae is at 1400, and Julia is up at 4400. We get the double Jeopardy categories over the hill, pick up the homophone, movies based on short stories, American artists, around 1001, and knights. K N I G H T S. Yes. And we got. Daily Double number two, super early as the third pick in the movies Mm -hmm. based on short stories category at the $1,200 level. And Tanae found this one as well. At that point, he had accrued $2,200. Jim is at $1,200. Julia is at $4,400. He bets it all again and gets the clue. Ward Green's Happy Dan the Whistling Dog became this 1955 animated Disney film, and he responded, what is The Lady and the Tramp? That's correct, although it's just Lady and the Tramp, but uh, that does not matter for right. for Jeopardy rules. Yeah, unless there was another movie called The mm-hmm. Lady and the Tramp that was different. Yeah, you can add or omit an article at the beginning and unless there's a different work, like Invisible Man versus The Invisible Man, you can do either and be counted as correct. In the American Artist category, you gotta know who painted Nighthawks. That's Edward Hopper. Mm-hmm. I like seeing Keith Haring on there at the $1,600 level. I imagine you're more more familiar with his work than I am. Yeah, it's um, very prevalent in the, in the New York area. Um, and he created pieces for some organizations and like events that I um, that I've like churches I've worked with have partnered with um, you know so he did a lot of stuff around the AIDS movement and that kind of thing cool. daily double number three is at pick number 21 it's in the over the hill category at the $1,200 level 
Uh, Tanae finds this one as well. He found all three, as Ken pointed out. And at this point, he's up at a big lead, 19,600 over Jim's 9,200 and Julia's 4,000. Uh, and he wagers 4,400. And the clue is, this river is just over the Palatine Hill from the Colosseum. He gets that right with what is the Tiber. Mm-hmm. So he jumps out to an even farther lead. Yes, indeed. Man, he just cleaned up in Double Jeopardy. Yeah, he really did. Beautiful job there. I thought Ken did a nice kind of callback to the interview segment when there was a triple stumper at the $2,000 level in the homophone category. Mm -hmm. Um, A group singing or a set of 24 sheets of paper. Um, That is a choir. You might be more familiar with the singing group than the 24 sheets of paper, which is Q-U-I-R-E. I think that's like a bookbinding thing. But Ken said... Oh, Julia, I'd hoped you would get that one because Julia is involved in like a like a choir of lawyers, I believe it is. Yeah, um, part of the yeah. L.A. Uh, lawyers Philharmonic or something. Yeah. But if you're not familiar with the 24 sheets of paper, then it's hard to narrow down what a group singing is supposed to be. I see a group singing and I think choir and I'm like, I've never heard that term for paper, so I would not risk $2,000 on it. Yeah, it vaguely rang a bell. I think I'd seen it at some point. It's like a bookbinding term. So Hmm. I felt okay about it, but but it's it's obscure for sure. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Tanay has a lock game with 26,800. Jim's at 8,400. Julia's at 6,000. And we have the final Jeopardy round, 1960s songs. And the clue is, the name of this title song from a 1964 movie can be translated from Spanish as Long Live the Meadows. Julia wagered everything and guessed, what is Viva Las Planes? Um, I think trying to just kind of translate into Spanish because she couldn't think of the uh, song or the movie. Mm -hmm. Jim wagered 3601 to try and lock Julia out of second place if he got it right. Um, and he correctly responds, what is Viva Las Vegas? Yes. Um, and then Tanay makes a zero wager. He could have made actually a pretty large wager without risking his lock, but maybe right. not crazy about the category. Um, but he did get it as well. What is Viva Las Vegas? So with 26,800, Tanay is our champion going into Tuesday. And on Tuesday, we get the contestants Lucy Ricketts, an illustrator originally from Atlanta, Georgia, Dusty Smith, a former movie executive from Corvallis, Oregon, and Tanae Kathari, a business operations associate from Oakland, California, who just won $26,800. And the Jeopardy round categories are a category for free, American cities, three-letter words, history, beware with B in quotation marks, and these songs could kill you. That was a fun one. Uh, category, that last one. These yeah, songs could kill you. Yeah, I thought it was fun. Yeah, Lucy got three out of them, and she kind of demonstrated throughout this game, and spoiler alert, others, that she has a pretty strong command of pop culture, and it seems particularly like popular music. Mm-hmm. That Peyton Manning fact came up in a quiz on the our podcast recently, right? Omaha! Yeah. Yeah, it, it did. It, it That was tangential to what I was asking about. Uh, I was asking about Omaha Hold'em mm-hmm. for some reason. What was that quiz even about? Was it Rivers? It might have been the Rivers one. Yeah. Whatever it was, 
there in in a quiz uh, a couple months ago. Yes, I did ask about Omaha Hold'em, and I made reference to Peyton Manning. Yes, it vaguely rang a bell, although I didn't bring Omaha to mind in time before Tanae got in there. Yeah. Daily Double number one comes up as the eighth pick at the $800 level of American cities. Tanae finds this one and makes it a true Daily Double with 2,000 um, to Lucy's 2,200 and Dusty's negative 200. And he gets the clue, a very specific wooden post led to the naming of this southern state capital en français. Um, and he correctly responds, what is Baton Rouge? And right off the bat, I guess not right off the bat, this is day number two, but we we get something in French, and uh, we didn't get Alex's treatment of French yes, pronunciation. Yes, I will, I will miss it. Like, but just to be clear, I'm not criticizing Ken Jennings, because y'all have heard me do French pronunciations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it does sort of drive home. Yeah. Um, Alex's idiosyncrasies that uh that we're going mm-hmm. that we're going to miss going forward. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Tanae is in the lead with ten thousand. Lucy has th- six thousand six hundred. Dusty has one thousand six hundred. And we have the double Jeopardy categories: children's literature, science center, notable women, insane clown posse, heavy metals. That's uh, metals with a D. And weather forecast inside. Each correct response will have a one-word weather forecast hidden within the word. Sounds confusing, but... For me, it did not help at all working toward the answers. The clues themselves were enough for me. Agreed. Yeah, looking for an like a word within the word, an infix? Is that what that's called? Yes, that was recently <laughs> on uh, Learned, Learned League. League. Yeah, That was a fun one. I I meant to do it and then I did not oh, go back so and finish the quiz in time before it closed. So, oops. Mm. Yeah, looking for the infix, I think, took too long. It works better to just work from the clue. Yeah, for sure. We had a reference to one of my uh, favorite uh, women in American history. Not because I know much about her, but I just... The, my imagery of her and my imagination is just super cool. Uh, in the notable women category at the $1,600 level, mm-hmm. this temperance crusader gave lectures billed as the famous and original barroom smasher. That's Carrie Nation. I don't know if any of the other 90s kids remember the the cartoon Hysteria, but I learned a lot of history from that cartoon, and I uh, remember their caricature of Carrie Nation. Uh, it's just always stuck with me. Hmm. Just running around with hatchets. Yeah. Breaking barrels. I actually, I mean, I'm sure I've come across her name before, but I, I don't know much about her at all. I really don't know much other than that she did that. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that was kind of her notable thing. We get the uh, we get Daily Devil number two right after that. Pick number 10. It's in the notable women category at the $2,000 level. Lucy finds it. And she is at 9000 Tanae's at 11200 Dusty's at 5200 And she makes it a true Daily Double. Uh, which was nice. awesome. Ends up being, I think, pretty out of character for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, she she wants to make the move, and she gets the clue. The longest-serving female U.S. senator in history, Barbara Mikulski, represented this state from 1987 to 2017. And she gets it right. She knows that it is Maryland. Mm-hmm. So she jumps up to a big lead. Yes, indeed. I had no idea on that one, actually. Yeah, I did not either. <laughs> Lucy also is the one to find Daily Double number three. 
as the 21st pick at the $1,200 level of heavy metals. And at that point, she wagers 2000 She has 22000 uh, to Tanae's 12800 and Dusty's 6000 um, So she's going to take it almost to a lock if she gets this correct, with nine clues left on the board after that. Um, and her clue is the president of Morehouse College was on the first committee to award the Springarn Medal of this organization. And she correctly responds, what is the NAACP? Mm-hmm. I'm remembering now that she was the one to find Daily Double number three because she guessed third after a miss from both of the other contestants on the previous clue. Yeah. So lucky, lucky break there in terms of um, being the one to hit that. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe she maybe she knew the correct answer to that previous clue all along. Or maybe sometimes when the other contestants make wrong guesses, it can kind of rule out some of the things you're thinking about and kind of help you out in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, at that point, they've already lost the money. So it's not like you're going to fall farther behind if you get it wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can sort of call attention to the the strategic importance of the of that moment leading into the the daily double find. I think he yeah. he has that contestant perspective, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I think that definitely definitely is true, and I and I also think like that's an example of him not being particularly stiff. Like I could see like myself if I were in that role, I would be so nervous that I would be terrified of saying literally anything other mm-hmm. than what's on the cards. Or, yes, you know. <laughs> but yeah, he he. He was calling things out and being being a good host. Yeah, agreed. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Tanae is at 16,400, Dusty is at 6,400, and Lucy is at 25,200. Those are big scores. Mm-hmm. And they get the category Famous Animals, and the clue is when she first came to the world's attention in 1957, she was dubbed Muttnik by U.S. journalists. And again, with that, Ken actually talks about the contestant's instinct. Dusty wagered everything but $2 and wrote, Who is that Russian dog? And as Ken, <laughs> as Ken points out, nothing is wrong there, but we cannot give you full credit. Because <laughs> it's not incorrect. Yeah. It's just not specific enough. Mm-hmm. So he drops down to $2. Uh, Tanay wagered 3599 That'll keep him above Dusty's all in if everyone gets it wrong. Yeah, yeah. But he was also incorrect. He wrote, who is Checkers? Which, uh... Checkers is I mean, a if you're president's just trying... dog, right? Which president goes with Checkers? It was Nixon's. Yes, Nixon's dog. Which I don't think he got until he was president or running for president in much later. Mm-hmm. Later than 57, at least. Yeah. Um, to try and make him more likable. <laughs> How'd that uh, go for him? <laughs> yeah, super good. We all know how that turned out yeah uh anyway uh lucy however wagered 7900 which is a cover bet and got it correct with who's Laika? Laika, the first living creature in space the mm-hmm. dog that the soviet union sent up never hurts to learn the names of like significant dogs there aren't that many of them and and they come up in trivia a lot i was standing in in like FDR's presidential library looking at an exhibit about his dog Fala and I was like I should just commit that name to memory because it's going to come up someday and then like the very next day it was in I can't remember Learned League or something Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it came up in uh, 
a uh, a trivia game that I was playing this week with my friends. Mm -hmm. The incoming presidential dogs are two German shepherds named Champ and Major, and they're very good boys. So they're uh, very good boys. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, they're good boys. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, Champ and Major. Okay. Yeah. All right. So. Moving on from presidential dogs and non-presidential dogs uh, to Wednesday's game. We have the contestants, Cameron Whiteside, a real estate agent from Mesa, Arizona. Josiah Jenkins, a risk management professional originally from Rugby, North Dakota. And Lucy Ricketts, an illustrator originally from Atlanta, Georgia, whose one-day cash winnings total $33,100. So we have the Jeopardy round categories, National Heritage Areas types of movies, flag talk, two middle names, scientific discoveries, and pros and cons. Each correct response in this category will be two words. One starts with pro and the other starts with con and the rest is identical. That was a fun category. Yes, I I loved it. An educator of higher learning and someone who admits to an infraction are a professor and a confessor. Mm-hmm. Although confessor also can mean someone who, who like listens, re- to, listens to confessions. Yeah. But it's not wrong. Yeah. We had the kind of tired joke at the $800 level. Um, advancement by a society and an assembly of representatives. Those are progress and Congress. And Ken notes those are often opposites. Haha. <laughs> Haven't heard oh, that one oh. before. And then nobody knew that uh, an act of incitement and a gathering of clergy are respectively a provocation and a convocation. I tried to start with the gathering of clergy and I got to conclave. Mm, yeah. And then I was like... Proclave. Yeah, What's a no. proclave? I've never heard of that. That can't be right. What mm-hmm. else could it be? And I couldn't get there. Mm-hmm. Throwback to my prime minister's... Mm-hmm. Deep dive in the two middle names category at the 800. This labor prime minister of the 1990s and 2000s has both Charles and Linton as his middle name. You don't need to know anything about his middle name if you know that Tony Blair was the prime minister from the 90s to the 2000s. Mm-hmm. I got that one. I probably would have gotten it anyway, but your deep dive mm-hmm. certainly helped. We had a tricky moment um, in scientific discoveries at the $600 level, uh, the clue there was when Carl Schiele discovered this element found in salt, he called it deflogisticated muriatic acid. Lucy rang in and guessed what is sodium. That's incorrect. Cameron rang in and guessed what is chloride, sodium chloride. That is also incorrect. And then Josiah was able to get in and get chlorine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The element is chlorine. Lucy kind of, I'm guessing, knew it was a coin flip. Um, Right. So she took one and it happened to be the other. Yeah. Uh, We get Daily Double number one in the National Heritage Areas category at the $1,000 level. Let's pick number 15. Uh, Cameron finds it, but he is in the red at negative 200. Lucy is up at 2,400. Josiah is at 3,000. He only wagers 500 on it. And he gets the clue. The NHA website for this region of the Mississippi River, describes it as the land where the blues began. Uh, And he doesn't offer a guess, uh, but they're looking for the Mississippi Delta, Mm -hmm. which I saw someone point out somewhere that when you're talking about the Mississippi Delta, you're not really talking about the river. You're talking about like the region of the state. 
Yeah. Um, like that's a landmass kind of thing. So I could see that be mis- being misleading, but I don't know. If you get the clue about the blues, about Delta Blues, then yeah, that would guide, that would bring you there pretty easily. Mm-hmm. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Lucy is in the lead at 6,600. Josiah's at 4,200. And Cameron is at negative 900. They get the double Jeopardy round categories. Choreographers, Possessive History, Company Name Origins, Bookham, Lyrical CV. They'll give the lyrics and you have to name the title figure. And Before and After. Just straight up Before and After. Yay, Before and After. Yeah. I love it Before and After. It was pretty good. Honestly, I think the difficulty that the contestants may have had, the $800 clue was a triple stumper and the $1,200 clue had a had an incorrect ring in. I feel like that might have come from just having someone else reading the clues. Mm, yeah. Because I, I feel like wordplay kind of categories like that, we're so used to hearing the way that Alex presents them. Mm-hmm. That maybe it, it might have been harder for the contestants to, like, parse what it was looking for because it was a different voice. Yeah. And different cadence. Mm-hmm. I know it was for me. It felt weird. Yeah, for sure. My kids got excited at the allusion to a favorite song of theirs in the $1,600 clue, which was Folk Trio behind Puff the Magic Dragon, who worked <laughs> with Lou Grant and Ted Baxter on TV. That is Peter, Paul, and Mary Tyler Moore. Josiah got that one. Dilly Double Two comes up as the 23rd pick at the $1,200 level of company name origins. And Lucy finds it. She's in a commanding lead with 18200 to Josiah's 9400 and Cameron's 300 She wagers 4000 and gets the clue. This 70-proof German herbal liqueur company's name comes from the German for Huntmaster. And she knows that one. It's Jägermeister. Mm-hmm. no thank you yeah yeah didn't didn't really experience much Jägermeister in my life I managed to skirt around that in college by insisting Mm -hmm. on clear alcohols Mm, yeah yeah it is it's one of those it's one of those like licorice Licorice. anise kinds of I I just I not I I can't I I can eat and drink almost anything but licorice I just I just don't care Mm -hmm. for it I've just never been like yay licorice that made something better. <laughs> um, yeah. Just always makes things worse. So, boom. Mm-hmm. Daily double number three is at pick number 29. It's in the choreographer's category. They left this one for dead last. Uh, personally, I don't blame them. But Lucy, if the $800 level had not been a uh, triple stumper and she'd gotten that, then she would have ran the category. So Lucy finds this one. She is already up to 25400 over Josiah's 9400 and Cameron's 2300 She wagers 4000 uh, The clue is, though he didn't win for Chicago in 1976, this man has the record for the most Tony Awards for choreography. Uh, and she gets that right. That's Bob Fosse. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of the Broadway choreographer name you need to know. Yep. Listeners, there is an almost 100% chance you are familiar with Bob Fosse's style, even if that name doesn't ring a bell. Spend 30 seconds on YouTube, and you can just sort of put a name with that. Um, It's distinctive, and you've probably seen it, because Fosse's choreography and, like, Fosse-esque choreography are so common Mm -hmm. in Broadway and theater at this point. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then Lucy picks up the $2,000 clue after that in, the, in that category. This modern dance master choreographed 181 works in her illustrious career. They gave a picture of her. That's Martha Graham, uh, who I have a soft spot for because she worked a lot with Aaron Copeland. And mm-hmm. Copeland is one of my favorite composers. She choreographed Appalachian Spring, which is one of my favorite pieces. Just mm, love me some Martha Graham. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round... Lucy has a lock game with $31,400. Josiah has $9,400. Cameron has $2,300. And we have the final Jeopardy category, World Geography. And the clue is the Oyapok River forms part of Brazil's 400-mile border with the territory of this European country. Cameron wagers $2,103. Um... And correctly responds, what is France? Yeah, Cameron. I think it just wasn't his day. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, he passed the test like everyone else. I just I just felt for him. Like, it just wasn't right. coming together for him. And, like, you could see him getting kind of more and more um, panicked as, as it went on. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it's nice to see him get the final Jeopardy at the end. Mm-hmm. Josiah wagered eight dollars which is a plug effectively for his podcast um (laughs) because it's i can't the eight dollar game show or something like that yeah something Um, like that yeah uh and correctly responds what is france um lucy wagered one dollar but she responded what is suriname but it doesn't matter because she had a lot game and then some yes she Um, had quite a lock yeah, so she'll be our champion going into Thursday. So on Thursday, we have the contestants Liz Fitting, a teacher originally from New York, New York, Brett Moore, a freelance sports writer from Hollywood, California, and Lucy Ricketts, an illustrator originally from Atlanta, Georgia, who's now up to $64,499. Two days. Mm-hmm. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, automobiles, historically bad, we pari, communication, two-letter lit, and the best of times. Mm-hmm. The best of times turned out to be about, like, speed records. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was a missed opportunity for, like, a punny pair of categories here. Like, you could have, like, the worst of times, but it could be spelled, like, worst and be about, like, sausages or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Jeopardy doesn't need to make every <laughs> bad joke. <laughs> that can be made (laughs) they already but we do want our we do want our sausage trivia content yeah there were a couple of triple stumpers in that best of times category the 400 dollars kind of surprised me monarchos in 2001 and this horse in 1973 still the record holder are the only horses to run the kentucky derby in under two minutes brett guessed seabiscuit uh which might have been in his mind because i think it was a correct response like the previous day i think yeah yeah so that might have just jumped to mind lucy guessed manowar who i believe was the horse that seabiscuit beat if i'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. but that was significantly earlier than 73 this was secretariat and to me secretariat is like the most knowable racehorsing name yeah heavily featured in bojack horseman also heavily featured in the movie secretariat (laughs) (laughs) anything about that but i can tell you that secretariat comes up in bojack horseman uh okay (laughs) wait is there a separate secretariat movie or you're making a bojack horseman joke no there is actually a movie 
sequel. It did not. It did not get nearly the acclaim that Seabiscuit did, though. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one is in the historically bad category. It's pick number six, fairly early. Brett finds it. Uh, he's up at fourteen hundred. Lucy's at two hundred. Liz is at four hundred, and he wagers uh, one thousand. He gets the clue. This began in Latin America in nineteen twenty-eight, a little before it hit the United States. He gets that right with the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Somehow my mind was... I, I corrected myself in time, but even with the date right in front of me, I was like, the 1918 flu pandemic. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's kind of on our minds right it's, now. It's right there on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brett is in the lead with 4,800. Lucy has 2,400. Liz has 1,800. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, unicorns, bodies of water, don't skip leg day. Rick's roll. <laughs> Let's go to the archives. And why is the only vowel? This was a good assortment of categories. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the why is the only vowel category. Sty, yeah. crypt, nymphs. They did a nice job with them, too. Uh, yeah. Again, I waited for Syzygy to come up, and it never did. It did not. It didn't. <laughs> You'll just have to wait another couple of years before this category comes back. Yeah. So Daily Double number two comes up as the fourth pick in the Bodies of Water category at the $1,200 level. Brett finds it and wagers 2000 of his 5600 He's in the lead at this point uh, with Lucy at 3200 and Liz at 1800 And he gets the clue. Blooms of the algae of... Trichodesmium erythrium give this body of water its color and perhaps its name. Um, and he correctly responds, what is the Red Sea? He then takes us over to the let's go to the archives category uh, where Lucy has a miss and he gets a correct response and then Lucy gets the next one and then uh, at the $1,200 level, they hit daily double number three. Uh, Lucy hits daily double number three and she wagers 2,000 of her 3,600. Brett's at 8,000 and Liz is at 1,800. I would think this might be another time for a true daily double. We've seen her do it. We know she can. Yeah. Maybe she's not really into the category. Sure. But a true daily double would take her up to a pretty close second place. Mm -hmm. And dropping to zero at this point, only seven clues in isn't, isn't going to be the end of the world. But anyway, she gets the clue. The Vatican Apostolic, formerly secret, archives hold a 200-foot scroll recording the 14th century trial of these knights. And she knows that one. That is the Knights Templar. Yep. I don't know a whole lot about the Knights Templar. And what I do know is pretty mixed up with the Da Vinci Code. So Mm. that is not historically reliable. Yeah, they... they they factor prominently in the Assassin's Creed games, but uh, probably not terribly historically factual. Yeah, maybe better than the Da Vinci Code, though. Uh, I mean, the big villains in the Assassin's Creed game are the Knights Templar, who still exist and run a worldwide conspiracy to like control the world. So mm. I'm not sure how accurate that is. Yeah. Anyway, at the end of the Double Jeopardy round... Lucy has another lock game at 17,600. Brett is at 6,000 and Liz is at 6,600. Had a lot of sixes there. 
The Final Jeopardy category is children's books, and the clue is this 1969 book was first printed in Japan because no U.S. company would then make a book with so many holes in the pages. Aww. Brett got it correct. He wagered everything with what is the very hungry caterpillar. Mm -hmm. He went up to 1,200. Liz wagered 6,000 as well. And also got it correct, so she was up to 12,600. Lucy uh, wagered 2,600. Got it incorrect with what is press the button. Yeah. So she drops down to 1,500 or 15,000. She's still the winner. Yeah, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Mm-hmm. That's the first book that my, uh, that my daughter quote-unquote read on her mm-hmm. own. <laughs> As in memorized all the words to and then pretended to read it out loud. I love when they do that, though. It's so cute. It's so cute. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> yeah. I have a I have a video of my older one reciting it. He was not holding the book. He was just he, he liked to make a little egg with his hand and then he would then mm-hmm. he would like do the very hungry caterpillar like opening pages. Oh. Um, just so cute. So um, cute. Yeah. I wonder what Lucy was thinking of with press the button. I wonder if she was thinking of like like Pat the Bunny kinds of books. Sure, yeah, maybe. Yeah, which are, I imagine, have have a very involved manufacturing process. Probably, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I would think so. Yeah. So Lucy is our winner, and we'll see her yep. again on Friday. Yep, indeed. So on Friday, we have the contestants Gotham Nagish, a journalist originally from Jackson, Michigan, Jennifer Lindy, an associate professor from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Lucy Ricketts, an illustrator originally from Atlanta, Georgia, whose three-day cash winnings total $79,499. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. It's a long story. Take note. Three-letter D words. The name is the TV title. Fortify yourself. And all kinds of wine. None of them fortified wine, though, I think. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think fortify yourself primed me to think that we were going to be talking about, like, port and stuff. Mm, yeah, yeah. There was a clear neg bait in the long story category at the $800 level. Uh, the clue is, Dimitri is arrested and convicted for his dad's murder in this Dostoevsky novel. But Smerdyakov actually committed the crime. Gautam rang in and guessed what is crime and punishment. Of course, if you know, if you only know the titles, it would, and you happen to know that crime and punishment is about a murder, mm-hmm. uh, then, you know, that seems like that would be the one, but that is incorrect. That The correct answer is The Brothers Karamazov. Yes. Which I, I have started reading that book, I don't know how many times. <laughs> one of my reading goals for 2021 is to read a very large book every month. Um, uh, Listeners of the podcast may know that I normally set a goal to read a certain number of books that then makes me reluctant to take on anything that's over like 400 pages or so. This year, I I wanted to tackle some of the big books. Um, I'm not planning to read The Brothers Karamazov this year um, because I've read Crime and Punishment. I, I... didn't especially enjoy the reading experience Mm -hmm. but it's it's on the the kind of the backup list um i am planning to read infinite jest which came up at the thousand dollar level oh nice yeah 
Cool, cool. Not planning to read Proust. Yeah. I'm going to read big <laughs> books, but not that big. Yeah. The one that <laughs> takes literally your entire life. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Seven volumes. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll read seven volumes of Harry Potter. Thank you very much. Yeah. We get uh, Daily Double number one in the Fortify Yourself category at the $600 level. Lucy finds it. She's in the lead at 4400 over Jennifer's 3200 and Gotham's 2800 She wagers 2000 which is one of her favorite wagers in Daily Doubles, we find. Um, and she gets the clue in 1835, Mexican General Martin Perfecto de Cos fortified this mission in San Antonio, but soon had to surrender it. And she gets that right with what is the Alamo. Mm -hmm. It's in Uh, San Antonio. Yeah, right. Not to be confused with Alamo, Texas, which is several hours away. (laughs) I wonder why that's coming to mind. No Um, reason. Yeah, so she gets that right and goes goes up a little farther. Uh, At the end of the Jeopardy round, she is maintaining her lead at 6,600. Jennifer's at 5,200 and Gotham's at 2,400. And the double Jeopardy categories are bygone abbreviations, so you have to respond with the abbreviation, uh, along for the ride, vocabulary, hodgepodge, and entertaining brothers. I can never remember the Lumiere brothers. I never can either. The name is just a little too on the nose, and so when it comes up, I'm like, oh, it's a little too on the nose. Like, the Cinema Brothers. Um, the movie brothers. What is, what is their name? <laughs> yeah. ADD was phased out in the late 80s as a disorder name. That is so perplexing to me. I think as a, probably from like the DSM is my guess. Yeah. But pe- but people still obviously still use it. I mean, day. Yeah. People still say it as though it's a different thing. But I, I mean, it. I don't know. I should ask my wife. She loves she loves talking about the DSM. Yeah. Uh, so she would probably know. Yeah. Um, at this point, uh, it is all called ADHD, but then there's three types. There's the predominantly inattentive type, the predominantly hyperactive slash impulsive type, and the combined type. Mm-hmm. We had a couple of um, callbacks to some... Some deep dives. Michael Collins in the command module Columbia, while Armstrong and Aldrin made it to the moon on this avian craft. Um, that's the Eagle. Lucy got that one. I can't remember if you covered that terminology, but uh, I did. certainly for the yeah. Apollo program. Yeah, yeah, I went over all the landing modules. Yeah, um, you did your rivers deep dive a while mm-hmm. back. We touched on the uh, the Congo, which came up mm-hmm. at the two thousand dollar level of along for the ride. I'm not sure I would have been able to identify that one from your deep dive, but I did read King Leopold's Ghost. um, So there you go. uh, Which was fascinating, and I recommend it. This has been Book Recommendations with Emily. Um, It's been a while. Yeah. Well, kind of. We had some last week. We just didn't say so. Yeah. We get Daily Double number two in Along for the Ride at the $1,600 level, uh, between the two I just mentioned. Um, It's the 14th pick, and Lucy finds it. She wagers 4,000 of her 14,600, so she's going a little bigger here. Um, I think trying to head toward a lot game. Jennifer's at 8,000. Gotham has dropped to zero. 
She gets the clue. This cartographer set out to explore the Mississippi in birch bark canoes with Jacques Marquette in 1673. Um, Lucy guesses who is LaSalle, uh, who's another name who comes up if you're kind of looking into this region and exploration, um, but that's not correct. It is Joliet. Yes. Anybody from the Chicagoland area would probably recognize Marquette and Joliet. A lot of things are named after them there. <laughs> mm, yeah. uh, but it, outside of that region, it, 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 you know, it might be a, a harder thing to know. But those two names should be connected to each other, Marquette and Joliet. Yeah, I, um, I have limited context, but I, you know, Ken Jennings said, oh, no, it's Marquette and Joliet, um, you know, in that, like, this is a phrase people know way. Um, and so I started Googling Marquette Joliet and like the, the autocomplete was Marquette Joliet LaSalle. And I was like, uh, oh, like, okay. <laughs> I guess she's making an educated guess there. Sure. Um, uh, Daily Double number three is at pick number 27. It's near the end of the round. Uh, Gautham finds it. It's in the vocabulary category. He's at 3,200, uh, way behind Lucy's 17,800 and Jennifer's 11,600. Uh, and he wagers everything but a dollar. And he gets the clue. The Cambridge Dictionary insists... We imply something by what we say. We do this fr- from what somebody else says. And he doesn't know, so he guesses what is act. Uh, but that is infer. The number of times I have said basically that exact thing to like, to students. Mm-hmm. You know, when they use the incorrect terminology. Yeah. It's like, well, you inferred this. Like, no, no, no. No, I, I implied it to you. You mm-hmm. inferred something else. Yeah, yeah. Misuse of those two is a pet peeve of mine. Um, <laughs> although I'm trying to be more of a, you know, more of a descriptivist, less of a prescriptivist. Um, mm. Mm. It's going. It's going okay. It's um, it's going. <laughs> uh, but I still get irritated by people mixing up imply and infer. So he drops down to a dollar. Smart of him to wager everything but a dollar. If it's important to you as a contestant to get to participate in Final Jeopardy, mm-hmm. um, then at 27th pick, Daily Double, you know, it makes a certain amount of sense to keep that dollar back. Um, right. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Lucy has 18200 Jennifer has 12,400, Gotham has 1,201, and the final Jeopardy category is Queen Elizabeth II, and Ken draws attention to um, that it's a little strange to have a person as the category. And then we have the clue, of the last 12 sitting U.S. presidents, the only one Elizabeth never met. She had her youngest child three months into his presidency. Gautham wagers 1,200 and responds, who is JFK? That is incorrect. So he drops down again to a dollar. Jennifer wagers every single penny she's got and correctly responds, who is Lyndon Johnson? Um, So she goes up to 24,800. It's not the most strategic wager, but it works out for her. Um, Sure. She knew the correct answer. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, and Lucy wagers 6,602. It's a cover bet. It's a cover yeah. bet. 
plus a dollar. Plus, plus a buck. <laughs> yep. And she also responds like Gotham, uh, who is John F. Kennedy. Uh, so that's incorrect. And she drops down to $11,598, landing in second place. Um, and that makes Jennifer our new champion. Yeah. I guessed Lyndon Johnson, based on my extensive historical knowledge gleaned from watching most of The Crown. Um, <laughs> I I feel like I would have had to watch The Crown, because I, I guessed JFK because I figured, well, he had the shortest presidency, mm-hmm. like him or Ford, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I get, like, it's one of those two, I would be sure, because it was the, the shortest, and then it's at LBJ, and I was like... Oh, okay. I, I don't I was, know how I was supposed to get there other than either just knowing the fact or knowing exactly when her youngest child was born. Yeah. I remembered that she was, you know, kind of of childbearing age in like the 1960s-ish. Right. Um, and I remembered she had met JFK because I saw that episode of The Crown. <laughs> I I think that they're... Um, Maybe the crown made more of it than it than uh, than there actually was there historically. I'm not sure, um, but what I gathered from that is that their their meeting was kind of newsworthy, um, and so I I guessed LBJ because I was confident it wasn't JFK, but I wasn't I wasn't sure. But good for Jennifer. I wonder if Jennifer is like a if her if her large wager was um, based on feeling really confident with. Queen Elizabeth. Maybe. Yeah, could be. She is our champion going to next week. Yes, indeed. So this is the time when we pause to remind you that we have a Patreon. Um, it is uh, patreon.com slash potent potables. Um, if you're interested in checking that out. And uh, we've also tended to set this time aside to talk about some causes that matter to us. We've gotten some feedback that is getting a little monotonous, so let's change it up for a second. Book recommendations with Emily, anti-racism edition. If you have not read any books about race and anti-racism, let me recommend two to you. Both of them are by Black women. One of them is So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo. Um, It's great. It's great. It is so readable. It is challenging in its content, but not in its presentation. Can't recommend it highly enough. Um, And then there's another one I'm going to recommend. It's called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. It's by Austin Channing Brown. A little bit more of a, like a, like a theological, spiritual um, aspect to this one gets recommended a lot in in my church circles. Um, And that one also is just outstanding. Um, So I would recommend either one to you. Um, I listened to the audiobook of the Austin Channing Brown. I believe she reads it herself. Yeah, she reads it herself beautifully. But really, either one is a great starting point if you are wanting to learn more about um, race, racism, and racial justice. And there's lots of other places you could start, but those are two of my favorites. So, Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I do. Okay. I do. Are we talking about the Cunard line of ships? We are not, no. Okay. Are we talking about uh, Marquette and Joliet? 
I thought very seriously about it, but we are not. Uh, um, okay, last one. Are we talking about... Are we talking about the DeLorean? <laughs> no. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so we're, we're on Wednesday's game in the scientific discoveries category um, at the $800 level. Alfred Nobel made the dynamite discovery that oh. this volatile liquid can be made safer if mixed with a certain type of dirt. Um, and the correct response there is nitroglycerin. Nobody attempted that one. Maybe some somebody with a stronger chemistry background than me could could do a deep dive on nitroglycerin itself. I'm going to be talking about Alfred Nobel's career, including his scientific work and uh, the Nobel prizes. Okay. Yeah, I I knew I knew a tiny bit about him. I knew like Alfred Nobel explosives manufacturing. Guilt Peace Prize, I think, is like how I would summarize my my knowledge of Alfred Nobel. Mm. So, um, thought I thought I'd dig in a little bit, learn a little more. So here we go. Alfred Nobel was born in Stockholm in 1833. He was the fourth son of Emmanuel Nobel and Carolina Andriette Alsell Nobel. I saw a few things that said he was the third son. Um, I think that fourth is correct. They had eight children, um, but only four survived past childhood, Alfred and three of his brothers. And so I believe that he was the fourth born, but of the surviving children, he was the third oldest. Uh, The family was impoverished initially, um, and following various business failures, Nobel's father moved to St. Petersburg in 1837 and grew successful there as a manufacturer of machine tools and explosives. He uh, convinced the Tsar and his generals that naval mines could be used to block enemy naval ships from threatening the city. His family joined him in St. Petersburg in 1842. Um, He also invented what we now know as plywood. So, yeah. So he, he, uh, he was very successful there, um, and uh, the newly prosperous Nobels were now able to educate their children in, in a more formal way. Um, Alfred Nobel was sent to private tutors, um, and he proved to be an eager and capable student. Um, he was a competent chemist by age 16, um, studying with chemist Nikolai Zinnin. And he was fluent in English, French, German, and Russian, as well as his native Swedish. He left Russia in 1850 to spend a year in Paris studying chemistry. And there he met Ascanio Sobrero, who had invented nitroglycerin three years before. Uh, Sobrero strongly opposed the use of nitroglycerin because it was highly unpredictable Exploding when subjected to heat or pressure, um, Sobrero bore scars from finding that out the hard way. Alfred Nobel became interested in finding a way to control it more effectively in order to be able to use it commercially as an explosive um, because it had much more power than gunpowder. Nobel then spent four years in the United States uh, working under the direction of John Erickson, the builder of the Ironclad Warship Monitor. On his return to St. Petersburg, Nobel worked in his father's factory, which made military equipment during the Crimean War. And then 
after the war ended, um, the company had difficulty switching to the peacetime production of steamboat machinery. Ultimately, in 1859, it went bankrupt. Alfred Nobel and his parents returned to Sweden, while his brothers Robert and Ludwig stayed behind in Russia to salvage what was left of the family business. Alfred began experimenting with explosives in a small laboratory on his father's estate. At the time, the only dependable explosive for use in mines was black powder, which was a form of gunpowder. Nitroglycerin, as I said, was much more powerful, um, but unstable. And so Nobel started working on that and in 1862 built a small factory to manufacture nitroglycerin as he undertook research in the hopes of finding a safe way to control its detonation. In 1863, he invented a detonator consisting of a wooden plug inserted into a charge of nitroglycerin held in a metal container. Uh, The explosion of the plug's small charge of black powder detonates the more powerful charge of liquid nitroglycerin. Um, And this marked the beginning of Nobel's reputation as an inventor and the beginning of the fortune that he was to acquire as a maker of explosives. In 1865, um, he invented an improved detonator called a blasting cap, a small metal cap with a charge of mercury fulminate that can be exploded by either shock or moderate heat. Just before that, though, um, on September 3rd, 1864, um, a shed that was used for the preparation of nitroglycerin exploded at the factory in Stockholm, Sweden, killing five people including Alfred Nobel's youngest brother, Emil. Um, Yeah, they had to move to work in a more isolated area. Um, Stockholm, at that point, outlawed the the manufacture of, I'm not sure if it's nitroglycerin specifically or explosives in general within the city limits, but, you know, seems seems wise. Um, And it seems to have only further motivated Nobel to find ways to um, uh, develop safer controlled explosives. Nobel's second and I think more important invention was that of dynamite in 1867, when he discovered that nitroglycerin could be absorbed in diatomaceous earth, which is the uh, like the kind of dirt that the Jeopardy clue referred to. Mm-hmm. Um, and the resulting mixture was much safer to use, easier to handle and more stable than nitroglycerin alone. He demonstrated his explosive for the first time that year at a quarry in Redhill, Surrey, England. Um, and it, in order to help reestablish his name and improve the image of his business um, from the earlier controversies, he considered naming the substance Nobel's Safety Powder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he instead decided, capitalism. right? Uh, but instead, he called it dynamite, um, which is from the Greek. Uh, dynamis, which means power. Uh, He was granted patents for it in Great Britain and the United States. And uh, dynamite was put to use in blasting tunnels, cutting canals, and building railways and roads. In the 1870s and 80s, he built a network of factories throughout Europe to manufacture dynamite and formed a web of corporations to produce and market his explosives. Um, In 1875, he invented gelignite, also known as blasting gelatin. Um, he discovered that mixing a solution of nitroglycerin with a fluffy, fluffy substance known as nitrocellulose 
results in a tough plastic material that has high water resistance and greater blasting powder than ordinary dynamite. He was elected a member of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences in 1884. And uh, I had a hard time getting my head around Nobel as a personality. So let me just read you this from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, Nobel's complex personality puzzled his contemporaries. Although his business interests required him to travel almost constantly, he remained a lonely recluse who was prone to fits of depression. He led a retired and simple life and was a man of ascetic habits. Yet he could be a courteous dinner host, a good listener, and a man of incisive wit. Uh, he never married and apparently preferred the, preferred the joys of inventing to those of romantic attachment. He had an abiding interest in literature and wrote plays, novels, and poems, almost all of which remained unpublished. He had amazing energy and found it difficult to relax after intense bouts of work. Among his contemporaries, he had the reputation of a liberal or even a socialist, but he actually distrusted democracy, opposed suffrage for women, and maintained an attitude of benign paternalism toward his many employees. Though Nobel was essentially a pacifist and hoped that the destructive powers of his inventions would help bring an end to war, his view of mankind and nations was pessimistic. So he's a complicated figure. He's a workaholic. There's maybe some depression there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I also saw references to anti-Semitism for what it's worth. Um, yeah. Yeah. In 1876, he uh, was living in Paris. He placed an advertisement for a secretary and housekeeper position, which actually included the, the advertisement I heard on a different podcast, but then I wasn't able to find the text. Um, the advertisement apparently uh, said he was seeking someone to help an elderly man. At the time, he was 42, but his health was not great. But he apparently saw himself as elderly or wanted to present himself as elderly. Anyway... Um, he ended up hiring Bertha Kinski, uh, but she stayed on only for a week um, because <laughs> she'd taken the position to leave her role as a governess at uh, with a family in Vienna because she had fallen in love with one of her employer's adult children. Um, oh. uh, the family disapproved of the match. She left their employ and took this position. Um, stayed a week and then returned to Vienna to marry this adult child of her previous employer, Arthur von Suttner. Um, so she became Bertha von Suttner and ended up becoming a very famous like pacifist, peace activist, author of the 1889 book Lay Down Your Arms, which is mm. um, has been compared to um, Uncle Tom's Cabin in terms of its like influence in Europe. And her, her week-long stint as Nobel's secretary and housekeeper left a lasting impression. Um, she only saw him two more times after that one week, but they corresponded throughout the rest of Nobel's life. Um, and her influence is believed to have perhaps been part of his reason for including a Peace Prize among the Nobel Prizes. Hmm. Um, yeah. He was maybe, I, I, I encountered a hint that he was romantically interested in, in her um, and inquired, but it quickly, you know, became clear that, you know, her heart belonged to someone else. Right. Um, after that, uh, Nobel met uh, a woman named Sophia Hess, um, and they had a tumultuous, long distance, often kind of toxic romantic relationship. Nice. She was 
Yeah, she was kind of his mistress, but she had other lovers. I think she ended up marrying someone else. I didn't find a whole lot about it, but he was single, but, you know, there, there, like there was a girl he was writing to. It was kind of a mess and he was kind of mean to her. And um, he patented yet another explosive in 1887, ballastite, which is a predecessor of cordite. And I don't really know what that is. Um, okay. Nobel held the patents to dynamite and his other explosives, um, but he was in constant conflict with his competitors who stole his processes. Um, and he was involved in protracted patent litigation on several occasions. His brothers Ludwig and Robert, in the meantime, had developed newly discovered oil fields uh, in what is now Azerbaijan um, and founded the oil company Bra Nobel, which means the Nobel brothers, and they had become immensely wealthy. Alfred Nobel's worldwide interests in explosives, along with his own holdings in his brother's companies, um, brought him a large fortune. Um, in 1893, he became interested in Sweden's arms industry um, and bought an ironworks at Bofors near Farmland that became the nucleus of the Bofors Arms Factory. He also had many other inventions, um, such as artificial silk and leather, um, and altogether registered more than 350 patents in various countries. In 1888, his brother Ludwig died, but the the story goes, um, and some of the things that I lo- looked at seem to think this was historical, like including some some like you know sort of reputable sources, and others seem to regard it as more rumor. Um, but the story goes that uh, several newspapers were confused about which Nobel brother had died, um, leading them to publish obituaries of Alfred while he was still alive. One French newspaper published an obituary, um, it said, titled uh, Le Marchand de la Mort est Mort, which means the merchant of death is dead. <laughs> uh, nice. Yeah, so Nobel read his own his own obituaries um, and was appalled at how he was going to be remembered based on his career to that point. It's said that this led to his decision to posthumously donate the majority of his wealth to found the Nobel Prize, um, wanting to alter his legacy. Nice. Yeah. I, I, I think that was successful. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. He moved to San Remo, Italy in 1891. In 1895, he signed his last will and testament, setting aside the bulk of his estate to establish the Nobel Prizes to be awarded annually without distinction of nationality. By 1895, he uh, developed um, angina pectoris, so like heart, like pain and pressure, uh, which was treated with nitroglycerin. The irony was not lost on him. And in 1896, he died of a cerebral hemorrhage um, at his villa in Italy. The contents of his will were a huge shock to his family. He had six nieces and nephews who had assumed that their extremely wealthy childless uncle was going to leave his fortune to them. Um, Brilliant. (laughs) Yes. Uh, His fortune was the equivalent of $250 million um, in today's currency. Um, And about 94% went to the establishment of the Nobel Prizes. Um, And the remainder did go to his family and other significant people from his life. His nieces and nephews certainly, I think, were left with enough that, you know, 
they weren't going to be poverty stricken, but I think that was maybe not what they were picturing. Um, Probably not. Uh, so they, they, they were mad about it. Um, and uh, the government of Sweden was mad um, that these were not going to be prizes for Swedes. Um, ah. Yeah, they, they, they didn't get it at that point. He also left directives, but like not much accomplished. So there was a lot to do in order to implement his vision. Um, he essentially left his fortune to be overseen by a foundation, but the foundation hadn't been created at that point. Uh, so that work happened over the subsequent several years. Um, the Nobel Foundation was founded on June 29 of 1900. And the first Nobel Prizes were given on December 10, 1901, which was the five-year anniversary of the date of Nobel's death. And that's the reason that the prizes are given on December 10th. Oh. Yeah. And uh, this is a deep dive on Alfred Nobel. Um, so we're not going to go on from there with the history of the Nobel Prizes. I'm not totally sure how I would even tackle that, but maybe someday we'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's... That's Alfred Nobel. Um, Sweet. Yeah. So are you ready for a quiz? Oh, I am ready. I thought you were. This is a <laughs> quiz about the Nobel Prize. Each each question corresponds to a, uh, a field. Okay. All right. Question one. The list of Nobel laureates in physics is full of familiar names. Einstein, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, and so on. One name I didn't know is Dennis Gabor, who received the award for a technology that has a name familiar from a certain Star Trek deck and a certain kind of sticker that you might have had on your binders during your childhood. I'm not sure how accurate the term is with regard to the stickers, uh, but Gabor's invention is the practice of making a real-world recording of an interference pattern, which uses diffraction to reproduce a 3D light field, resulting in an image which still has the depth, parallax, and other properties of the original scene. What is the name of the innovation for which Gabor received his 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics? Uh, is is that holograms? Yes, uh, holography, but yeah, holograms. Hol- holography, okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yes. I, I, I'm not quite sure what holograms are used for other than stickers on, on elementary school notebooks, but... I'm oh, not entirely sure either. Oh man, I loved my hologram stickers. Oh yeah. I mean, who didn't, right? All right, so 10 points. Question two. The 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna for a gene editing technology, the name of which sounds like a drawer in your refrigerator, but it is in fact an acronym for something else entirely. What is the name of that technology? I believe that is CRISPR. It is CRISPR. Very nice. CRISPR in this case stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Um, mm. I, I still am, I, I looked a little bit at, at the CRISPR information on Wikipedia and didn't fully understand it. That's why they're lo- Nobel laureates and I'm not, but <laughs> it's going to be really important. Scientists are going to be able to do important things with it. Yes. Uh, yeah. All right. So you are at 20 points. 
Question three. The Nobel Prize cannot be awarded posthumously, which is one of the reasons that the 1962 Prize for Physiology or Medicine was awarded to James Watson, Francis Crick, and Maurice Wilkins. What other scientist whose DNA X-ray crystallography work was key to the discovery of the structure of DNA had died of ovarian cancer four years prior and therefore could not be nominated. Oh man, there's a name that jumps into my head and I have no idea if it's actually the person, but I I think I'm going to go with Linus Pauling. Mm. That is not correct. This is Rosalind Franklin. Oh, Rosalind Frank. Oh my God, of course. Yeah. I heard Francis and I was like, oh, isn't that the woman? Mm, yeah. was, like, integral to this? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. It was uh, Rosalind Franklin. Oh, of course. Of course yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah. There's the there's a whole controversy there to look into. So it sounds like you're, you're familiar-ish with it. Yeah. 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 All right. So you're at 20 points. And question four. While the other prizes can only be awarded to individuals, the Peace Prize may be awarded to organizations. Since 1901, 28 organizations have been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, some more than once. For two points each, name any five organizations that have received the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm going to be liberal in... uh, kind of the naming thing. Some of them have, you know, like complicated names or there's like, yeah, there's, there's a few like tricky things with the names, but like, if it's clear that you're talking about the right organization, we'll go with it. Okay. Let's do five guesses. Oh, geez. Doctors Without Borders. Yes. Um, the uh, UNICEF? Yes. The WHO? Uh, no, it looks like the WHO has not. Okay. Um, the Red Cross? Uh, yes, many times. Uh, and, and like, various, like, entities of the Red Cross. It, I think that sometimes just, like, the Swedish Red Cross, maybe, um, or, like, something like that. Uh, but yes, definitely the Red Cross. All right, okay. and you've got one more guess. You've, you've, you've tried, you've done Doctors Without Borders, UNICEF, and Red Cross, and World Health Organization is not as the was the one miss. Um, oh, what is that? What is that called? Uh, Amnesty International. Yes, Amnesty International nice. has. Yeah, nice. Um, all right, so that is eight points. Few other notable organizations that have received. The Nobel Peace Prize. Um, in 2020, it was the World Food Program, uh, the EU, the UN. Oh, I thought I thought about the UN. I was like, but that that's too big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a yeah. way the, the UN gets an award. Like, yeah, okay. uh, the UN Peacekeeping Forces. Um, okay. The International Campaign to Ban Landmines. Probably that wouldn't be sure, on the tip yeah. of your tongue, but you know, mm-hmm. I think that's like. Is that like Princess Diana's thing? I don't know. Um, it seems like it was like right around the time that she was doing that work. So um, mm-hmm. 
that was kind of the connection that I jumped to. And the Quakers, the uh, the Friends, oh. American Friends Service Committee, the Friends Service Council, various um, sort of uh, entities associated with the Quaker faith um, were other kind of notable ones that I that I saw on the list. Cool. All right, so that's eight points. So you're at twenty-eight. Question five. Um, there's another award, which is widely considered to be one of the Nobel Awards. Um, however, it is not one of the fields named by Nobel in his will. Rather, it is a separate award established in his memory in 1968 um, and funded by a separate organization. Um, it is, however, administered by the Nobel Foundation. In what field is this sort of a Nobel Prize? Oh, jeez. Um... I'm trying to think of what's not a Nobel Prize because things are coming to mind. For what it's worth, it is like it, it's generally like if you read like news stories about it, it will generally just be referred to as a Nobel Prize. Okay, is it medicine? It is not medicine. It is. I guess that that was your guess, right? Like, yeah. yeah. All right, uh, economics. Oh, okay. Yeah. So technically, the like what we call the Nobel Prize for economics is the Bank of Sweden Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel. Um, <laughs> it just uh, rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, it was it was established by Sweden's central bank and the Nobel Foundation administers it and they talk about it alongside the Nobel Prizes, but it's technically like a separate thing. Yeah, the, yeah, the five categories that were named in Alfred Nobel's will were um, chemistry, physics, physiology slash medicine, peace, and literature. And then the economics one, there was this other thing that happened in 1968 to create that prize. All right, so you are at 28 points. And we're going to call the final category French philosophers. Oh, great. How much would you like to wager? <laughs> can, can we do a zero bet? Uh, we, can, we can do a zero bet. I don't know. I mean, who who do I think I am? I'm betting 28. Okay. So All I right, can get so to zero is what I really Here we meant. go. All right. A handful of people have declined the Nobel Prize, including this French existentialist playwright and novelist who declined the literature prize in 1964 saying a writer must refuse to allow himself to be transformed into an institution even if it takes place in the most honorable form oh my gosh um oh my gosh There's only one name that's coming to mind. Oh, no, wait. No, there's there's really only one name coming to mind, and I'm not sure that it's right, but I'm going to say Sartre. You're correct! Oh. It's Sartre! Oh. Oh. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I did it! Ooh. All right, you are finishing with 56 points in this unintentionally very hard quiz about the Nobel Prizes. Uh, it was, I think it was properly balanced. Given. <laughs> we'll call it balanced. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we'll go with that. Um, 
Congratulations, Kyle. Thank you. Thank you. Good quiz and good deep dive. Oh, thank you. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. It is such a delight to share Jeopardy with you. Um, And we appreciate you being here. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, If you could leave us, if you could leave us five stars, that would be so great. If you feel like you have to leave us some number of stars other than five, that's, that's okay, too. Uh, we also would appreciate your reviews, and uh, we love when you read re- when you leave reviews. We read all of them, and I think maybe we should start reading them on the podcast. Yeah, by name next week. calling people yeah. out. Yeah. Oh, that's not <laughs> what only, you meant. <laughs> it's only calling them out if it's not a glowing review, which which many of them are. They're so delightful. I love the reviews. Leave us reviews, my friends. You can check out our Patreon at uh, Potent Potables, if that's something that's of interest to you. And uh, even if it's not, if you have friends who like Jeopardy, make sure to tell them about this podcast. Y'all can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week uh, with another week of Jeopardy hosted by Ken Jennings. Will we be used to it then or no? Probably no. Um, And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.